All right, so we didn't get to finish last week's notes, right? And so it was, we were kind of within Christ the culture. So if you have your notes from last week, that's great. If you don't, we, I think there's still some that are out there. Um, but we'll work through this, and then we'll, we'll start another slide after that. And I think we should be able to get through most of it uh, tonight. But we were kind of working, you know, the church's response to the culture over the... And historically speaking, and the first one was Christ against culture. We covered this, so I'm just going to run through this real quick. And that's those who follow this approach do so because they believe the world is the region of darkness into which the citizens of the kingdom of light must not enter. And then that's all of that. And then there was Christ of culture. And it's those who approach this see Jesus as the Messiah of a particular culture. Uh, we talked about that. And then there's Christ above culture. And the goal is not to change culture, but to point people to God. Talk about that. Christ and culture and paradox, which believes culture is important because God left us here, but it's also broken and cannot be fixed apart from the redemptive work of Christ. <clears throat> and we talked about that. And then we get to this, and this is kind of where we ended at, is Christ the transformer of culture. Um, so this is where we left off. And when we talk about this, this idea or this approach to the culture, man, it's the finished work of Christ allows us to bring redemption and restoration to every aspect of the culture, right? Not just redemption, but redemption and restoration. And this is, again, that's the overarching view of Christ, a transformer of culture, right? This approach, it not only strives for personal redemption, Right for individual redemption, but also creational restoration. Okay, and again, I think this often what happens is is we leave this idea um, short in the church, generally speaking, because it's share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, and we should, and we should share the gospel with every chance and opportunity that we get. But again, we're not just saving people to a future life. Man, we're saving them to a fullness of life here on this earth, a restoring of life, right? And that's God wants us to live a life abundantly on this earth. John 10, 10. Bob. You said, but also creational restoration. And some Christian people, do you think, might be misguided by that to say, get caught in this environmental, you know, mother earth? Well, I'll tell you what happens is on that, and that is... Um, I mean, even with climate activists, I mean, their, their goal is, it's a worthy goal. I mean, you know, we should care for the earth. I mean, and that becomes part of what, what Christ has created us for, what God has created us for. That's the, the restoration part. But what happens is, is there's a little bit of truth in every lie, right? That's what makes a lie good, is that okay, there's some truth in here. And you're like, yeah, I can connect with that. But then everything else is just garbage that's built around it. And so that's what we see. And then, so either the world is, and we're, I, we'll probably talk about this a little bit in the, next, in the next piece on the cultural mandate. But that is, you know, everybody gets a little bit of the truth. But until we bring it both together, God's purpose and design, we're never going to see the fullness of the truth. And so we get off the rails and we either hold high creation and we deny God, right? Or we walk with God and we reject the whole creational aspect of what we're called to do. 
So yeah, you can definitely get, and again, you can get cults get off the rails too. I mean, so it's this anything you can, false religions, the occult. Um, so yes, you can, Bob, you can, you can end up there, but that doesn't mean that we don't strive for what Christ has created us to do. And this is Romans 8, and this is where he talks about uh, Paul's talking, and it's really the creation, really this, all of that, and he goes in, is for we know that the, this is the last sentence, or for we know that the crea- whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so at the fall, it wasn't just human. We took on that sin nature as humans, but that sin nature also affected the creational order. Right? And it would be a whole nother class that like when we, when we begin to talk about it, and that is, man, the whole ecological system, man, it's, it works according to design and purpose. But the fall affected that. And so even creation doesn't operate the way God intended it. Tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, all of those things were not part of God's creational order. The sin, the fall of nature brought all of that on. And so it's important that we deal with both the redemptive and the restoration, the individual and the creational. And again, all of this is going to be wrapped up into the cultural mandate. Um, so not only humanity has been corrupted, but so has creation has been corrupted. So Christ, the restorer of culture, is the one approach out of the five that we looked at that best aligns with the cultural commission. Right? Those other four, while there's truth that's wrapped up in that and that they're pursuing they leave some aspect of the cultural mandate out. And so whether it's creating culture or even to think that we can affect culture or change culture, they always leave some aspect out. And so it's this Christ, the transformer of culture, is the one that best fits the model of the cultural mandate. So how do we, be, how do we transform culture? How do we transform it? So the first thing is, is we need to understand that redeeming or creating cultures is a part of our mission. It's a part of what we were created to do. Right? Only in the cultural commission do we see the grand story of the Bible being lived out. Only in that. And again, a lot of times an example of this would be like when, when we share the gospel, not everybody, but it's a lot of times people will start with, well, you know you're a sinner. And you're in need of a savior. And Jesus died on the cross for you, and he can redeem you. Well, that's just the middle part of the story, right? If if the story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, we're only talking about the two middle chapters. And so we start with the fall, and we need to start with creation. We need to be able to start with creation to tell the whole story of the Bible, because that is what's going to draw a dying culture to Christ. Again, the climate activists, man, we need to care for the earth. And we do need to care for the earth. They got that part right. They just leave the one out who designed the earth. The one who created it, they leave out. And so by sitting there and telling them, wow, you know, I agree with you. We need to care for the earth. And then we tell this grand story of the Bible of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's like, that's what God has created us for. But it's important how we do it. It's important how we do it. So only in the Cultural Commission do we find the best idea of how to create a culture that flourishes. 
only in the cultural mandate. Again, anything outside of this, you can come up with ideas that will help, but until you put the whole story together, there's going to be a flaw. There's going to be a negative aspect to that. There will always be that if we get outside of God's purpose and design. All right? Abraham Kuyper, he said, there's not a square inch in the whole creation or in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Every square inch of creation belongs to Christ. And we are to have domain over every square inch of creation. And we give up none of it to the enemy. We are to give up none of it to the enemy. We are to go and fight for all of it. Because it's Christ. It belongs to him. And that's, we get into this, Christ, the transformer of culture. So two, we need to take culture seriously. Once we accommodate a shallow culture, we'll eventually imitate it. Once we accommodate a shallow culture, we will eventually imitate it. All right, so whether it's our entertainment choices or church strategies, whether it's seeker-friendly, whether it's progressive Christianity, whether it's church growth strategies, trying to grow numbers, that type of stuff. When we accommodate the secular aspects of culture, it just comes into the church. It just comes into the church. Right? God does not call us to grow the church. He calls us to equip the church. Equipping is what he's called us to do. The growth belongs to him. The growth belongs to the Lord. We need to make sure we're equipping our people. You could write down Ephesians. It's not up here. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And it says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, <clears throat> excuse me, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We are called to equip. We are not called to grow. Questions? All right. So three, we need to create new culture. We need to create new culture. This is part of the domain Right? Andy Crouch says the only way to change culture is to create more of it. It's kind of like that idea. Uh, I saw it's a meme, and it says, you know, it's easier to grow a godly child than it is to repair a broken one. It's easier to grow a godly child than it is to repair a broken one. And it's this idea. It's easier just to create new culture than it is to try to go ahead and redeem broken culture. But that doesn't mean we don't, we don't work that. It's just easier to go out and create culture, and we'll come to an idea. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I meet a lot of young seminary guys that, you know, they're graduating from seminary and they're like, you know what? I would rather just go start a church than go and take a church over. And I'm like, why is that? And they're like, man, when you go and you take over an existing church, you get the good with it 
and you get the bad with it. When you start a church, you get to start it however you think God's calling you to start it. And it is easier to do that. There's other drawbacks that come with that, but it's easier to start from scratch than to try to build it all over what's already been messed up. So as followers of Christ, we're called to engage the culture, influence the culture, and where possible, create culture for and with the cause of Christ. So people will know him and that his name will be glorified. This is why we want to create culture. All right, the biblical worldview is the only view that can bring about a culture that truly flourishes. Truly flourishes. Right, the biblical worldview has the best ideas because they're God's ideas. We just need to be able to communicate that clearly. And I think sometimes that we struggle with that. Right? Christianity is meant to be culture shaping. Okay. Questions? Bob. Christianity is meant to be culture shaping, but it's supposed to be like Romans 12, you know, the, the be not conformed to this world, but that's what the, it is been happening in the church. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're either going to go and influence and shape the culture or we're going to be influenced and shaped by the culture. There's no, there's no neutral ground. It's not like, okay, I'm just going to stay here and do neither. If I'm going to take a neutral stance, I've already been influenced by the culture. I've already been influenced by the culture. There's no middle ground. We're either moving and shaping according to the cultural mandate or we're being shaped and moved by the world and that's that accommodation idea and there's again there's no other option there's no other option what's that oh absolutely oh absolutely okay so questions on this all right let me take a minute i'm gonna get this next one set up and All right, so we start there, and then we're talking about the cultural mandate. And again, I've talked about this man last year, just this year, but it's just been in bits and pieces, so I wanted this to take some time out and put it all together. Some of it will bore you. Some of it's like, yeah, yeah, Rick, we've heard that, and so we'll try to move through that. Um, but I just want to put that whole picture together so we can look at what is this cultural mandate? Where does it come from? Why? What does it look like? And so that's what we're going to work on, right? It the cultural mandate refers to God's purpose and design for our lives and for all of creation, right? God designed everything, and everything has a purpose, and all of that design and all of that purpose falls within the cultural mandate. All of these areas, plus a lot more, fall under the realm of the cultural mandate. It all has a purpose. It all has a design as we work through each one of these things. And again, there's many other fields that's not even listed up here. But everything, the sciences, law, it's all a cultural aspect that God has a design and purpose for. I like the I, I, that was just for you, Matthew. Yeah, I thought, okay, oh, I'll put it in there. 
I had to work, you know, I had to look it up to how to spell it, but that's okay. So yeah, mathematics, even mathematics, God's in charge of that, of mathematics. He created it, right? And again, we just saw this in the last one, Abraham Kuyper's quote. You can tell I like it a lot, right? The cultural mandate covers every discipline that we find and experience in the created order. There's nothing outside of the cultural mandate. And hence, everything you talk about is not positive because when you talk about these kinds of issues, people accuse me of saying, you're being positive. Oh. It's not true. No. Every area in your life, in our existence, has to do with culture and biblical mandates and principles. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, can, can we make everything political? Sure, we can. We can, and we can make, and again, we can turn around and make that the most important thing. And again, if we're relying upon our government to save us, oh my gosh, that's wasted time right there. That's not the government's role. That's not the government's role. And so, but everything, law, economics, it's all part of the cultural mandate. That's all part of God's economy. And so, you know, that's, that's the great thing is, is, man, I tell our students, it's like, look, you don't, I mean, this is going to, I should probably turn the microphone off on this. Look, you don't have to go in the ministry to go and do God's work. As a matter of fact, we need more godly people outside of these walls influencing the culture then we need more ministers because the reality is if you're a nurse, you're going to reach people that I can never get in touch with. You know, I pass out when I get into the hospitals. And so that's not very good for effective, you know, culture making. And I'm definitely terrible at mathematics, so I can't do that. So there's always going to be somewhere that you can go and influence culture. DJ, you're going to love this, right? We were just talking about criminal justice over here before the class started. And, you know, my undergraduate degree is in criminal justice. Now, I, I won't even tell you the story behind that because we're running short. But anyway, you know, I wasn't a Christian. I was just a lost pagan. And, um, but I got saved. And I'm doing this criminal justice work for a major retailer where, you know, my job is to, I got people that catch shoplifters and I catch shoplifters and I catch employees and there's operational stuff and there's all the stuff. And I'm thinking, God, I can't, I can't serve you here. And it's like, I put you right where I want you. And one thing I found out, you know, when you catch somebody shoplifting, and you've got them in handcuffs sitting in your office, they're pretty much a captive audience, literally, right? And emotionally. And so I just start saying, hey, you know, I just start talking. Hey, why are you doing this? What puts you in this situation? Tell me your story. You ever go to church? Do you know anything about Jesus? And I start sharing the gospel with them. Now, you're going to find this hard to believe. Either they were all already Christians or they all got saved. I'm a skeptic enough to know. It's like, if this will help me, I'll go ahead and say yes to Jesus. But, so man, I get to share gospel with people. There's this been stealing from my company. But that's okay. We need people in every facet 
of culture living out their faith, not just the redemptive aspect, it's never less than redemption, but also the restorative aspect. No lie, I caught an assistant manager stealing from us once, and uh, man, he was hard. He, of course, he, you know, he'd been around it. He knew all the cameras and stuff and sent him to jail anyway. And he was bitter. And I get it because he, he just lost his job and had a good job. Uh, his family was going to struggle from that. I did not see the guy for probably 15 years. And I was in Lowe's. I no longer worked for the company. I was in Lowe's. And he comes up to me and he says, do you remember me? And I'm like, this is probably not going to end well. (laughs) I mean, that was just my first thought. This is probably not going to end well. And I said, yeah, man. I said his name and uh, I said, how you doing? He says, man, I want you to know that day you caught me stealing turned out to be the best day of my life. I says, tell me about that. And he says, you know, I told you that I was a Christian. Well, I wasn't. And I was broken after that. And I went to my church. And I eventually gave my life to Christ. And now I'm working in the church. The best day of his life. And I'm thinking, I can't do anything for the Lord here. Wherever God has placed you, he has placed you for his purpose and his glory to extend his kingdom. I don't care where it's at. I don't care where it's at. He can use you where you're at, regardless of where that is. What's that? Yeah, grow where you're planted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so when properly understood, it points, the the cultural mandate points to an incredibly beautiful and inspiring picture of human flourishing within God's created order. And again, that's that whole story. Again, you know, we can go back to the climate activists. Man, when we faithfully live out God's cultural mandate, we're going to take care of the earth too. We're going to take care of the earth too. Because that's what we're called to have dominion over that. Again, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, this is where we find the cultural mandate because we're image bearers. He said, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it or have dominion over it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here we find the cultural mandate. Here's where we find the cultural mandate, right? Verse 27, made in God's image. That's the foundation of why we do verse 28. Right? The multiply, rule, dominion, flourishing, it's made in God's image. Right? If we don't have 27 or we reject being made in the image of God, we deny it or we suppress it, we're only left with survival of the fittest. There is no grounds for saying there is right and wrong apart from being an image bearer of God. You have no grounds for it. It's just opinion. It's just opinion when you say, I don't think we should do that. Why? Well, it's wrong. Who says? 
Who says? Where do those rights come from? Right? Do they come from the government? Well, then the government can take those rights. But when they come from God, nobody can take those rights from you. They're yours because God gave them to you. And that's where we get that intrinsic value and worth. And so whether you're poor or rich, you have great value. Right? Whether you're smart or not, you have great value. Whether you live in India or America, you have great value. Because everybody's an image bearer of God. Right? Again, just what I was saying, those who reject the image of God in humanity have no foundation for saying human life has any intrinsic value. And when you, when you reject that idea, oppression's coming. Oppression is coming when you reject that idea. And when you see whole cultures and nations reject that idea, then it becomes even more so. It, it will eventually implode. It can go so long, but it eventually implodes. And we're seeing that, not just in America, we're seeing that worldwide. You cannot continue to reject the design and purpose of God and think things are going to go well. They will not. They cannot. So, image bearers. Who we are or who we believe ourselves to be determines what we do. It determines what we do. I was just talking about this this morning with some students. Belief precedes action. What you truly believe will be revealed by what you actually do. Right? I think statistics 68% of the Americans self-identify as Christians. But do they act according to Christian principles? Do we act according to Christian principles? Because if you don't, then you have to seriously say, am I really a follower of Christ? If I'm not living it out according to God, so I'm not saying perfectly, right? Because none of us do that. But if I'm not even striving or I'm reimagining, right? And I'm trying to accommodate the culture. Then we have to really ask, am I a follower of Christ? Because I'm not following his commands. So verse 26 says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 27, created, God created man in his own image. In the likeness of God, he created them. All right? We are created in his image, designed to fulfill his purpose. Again, the design is not that God is a physical human being. That's not the image that we're talking about, right? Because John 4, 24 says God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. So it's not that aspect that, oh, God has a physical body, or God's male, or God's female, or God's non-binary, or whatever crazy idea that we want to put in there, God is a spirit, God is a spirit. And so when we talk about this image, we're referring to the likeness, the essence, or the nature of God. You can think about the attributes of God, the character attributes of God. And so that's what the image is tied to is the very essence of God. We have a created order as God does. Well, God doesn't have a created order. We get it from him. Adam and Eve were created with a duality of being. In other words, there's a physical nature and there's a spiritual nature. And again, we can go and we can walk through worldviews after worldviews and 
outside of the Christian worldview, what we're going to find is, is one worldview is going to emphasize the physical aspects of, of it, secularism, postmodernism, right? There's the physical, there's the natural world, there's this not the supernatural, and they reject that. Or we can get into transcendentalism, which is this like, yeah, this whole physical stuff, that's not good, it's evil, but the spiritual is everything. And so, in part, they get part of it right, but if you don't get it all right, you're going to be led astray because God created both the physical and the spiritual, and he created them to work together in harmony with one another. So being made in God's image means we have some of the same attributes that God has. Some of the same attributes that God has. Loving, creative, relational, merciful, rational, free will, and there's more, right? We have these things because God has these attributes. And he's put them in us as image bearers. Because God is, we can be also. Questions? We good? All right. So every person on the planet is made in his image. Uh, because of this truth, every person is worthy of love, respect, and honor. Bob? Can I share something? Sure. This is how you engage the culture, and this is how the biblical principles help you interpret throughout life. These days, there's a lot of talk going about aliens and, you know, spaceships. <laughs> and I categorically make, would make it happen. Historically, I've made this bold statement. There is no such thing. Yeah. Because you understand the Bible. God, you said we are like God because God created us. Mm-hmm. And we have this creativity, and we create these beautiful things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have to be feared by God. Well, God did. And God did not do anything about it because for God so loved the world, I got to mankind, mm-hmm. and he gave his only begotten son. So that's why they cannot exist. It's yeah. false sacred manifestation. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, and I think what you know here's and here's usually where I'll draw the line on on the whole discussion on that. I says, look, if there's multiverse, in other words, there's there's millions and millions of verses, and if there's other life form that's out there, God created it all. God created it. If it's out there, God created it. Sun, the moon, the stars, God created it. If there's any other type of living form, God created that too. And if there's anything that has a soul and a spirit, it needs Jesus. Now, because, right, I do apologetics and I do worldview. If you're going to come with that, you need to bring evidence. You need to bring evidence. And if there's no evidence, then we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be playing around with this. Move on. And let's do, we got plenty of problems here, right? I got enough problems I deal with on a day-to-day basis without worrying about something that's completely out of my control. If it exists, God created it. And it still must answer to God. I got enough problems myself right now. I can tell you, never mind, I'm not even, even going to do that. We're going to move on. You know, I went to Roswell, New Mexico, right? Yeah. I, 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 I got it. I got it. Have I told this story before? 
Man, I went to Roswell, New Mexico, right? It's this whole microeconomy on spaceships. You know, apparently it was in the, the 50s or the 40s, a spaceship crashed there, and there was a, a live alien and a dead alien and all this other stuff. And so we were at the international, I don't know if it's really international, but anyway, we were at the International UFO Museum. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. You got to go. And so we go, and, and of course, you got all of these little aliens. Of course, they happen to look like everything that's on TV. And so you're going around, and you're just looking at all the stuff, and most of it's just movie props. And, but there's people there that really believe this. They're all in. And there was this one little guy, and it was just like, you know, wherever we went, I'd look, and he'd be like, And so, you, you know, you think somebody's staring at you, but, you, you know, you, you don't really want to make a scene because it's like it's embarrassing. They're not really staring at me. So I move and I go to another spot. And then he kind of goes around something else. And then he's like, yeah, he's just staring at me. And so I'm like, I'm with a friend and I'm like, hey, man, I, I think I've been outed. He says, what do you mean? I says, this guy over here, he's staring at me. I think he knows I'm not a believer. I think he knows I'm not a believer. And so we're going through this little thing, and it's the entertainment value is worth it, okay? I'll just tell you, the enter- it's worth it. And, and so then we go into the gift shop, and I'm telling my wife, we're in the gift shop, and I'm like, hey, there's this, this guy, man. He's just been, he's even creeping me out. And he's just staring at me the whole time, and he just keeps showing up. And so I'm like this, and my wife is here, and she goes, and she's looking over my shoulders because of this small guy, kind of blondish hair, heavy set. Yeah, he's staring at you right now. <laughs> and so I, I look, and sure enough, man, he is just like. Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, this is creepy. I said, I think he knows I'm, an un- I'm not a believer. And she goes, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, that's what my wife said. She goes, I think he thinks you're one of them. You know, none of them have hair. They're all bald and it's just like this. And I'm like, you could be right. You could be, you know, and I'm like, these are my people. Right? These are my people. And so there's some people, they really get into this stuff. And so now that's kind of the joke with our friends that were with us. It's like, these are my people. And they're coming for me. Okay. Anyway, listen. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that, um, I mean, man, you want to talk about getting off, <laughs> getting off the rails? We just did. Um, anyway, every person is worthy of love, honor, and respect. That little guy that was staring at me, he is deserved of love, honor, and respect. Whether they, he agrees with me, whether he thinks I'm an alien or not, whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican or Libertarian, right? Whether, whether I'm Jewish or Muslim, regardless of what it is, they're worthy of love, honor, and respect. They're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. They've been taken captive by the enemy's lies. They have intrinsic worth. And just as I said last week, right, being made in God's image allows us to fulfill the cultural mandate. Only humans create culture. Animals do not. Animals do not create culture. They just respond and react. Mm -hmm. So then we have the fall. 
All right, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, we inherited a sinful nature. Hopefully, we don't need to belabor that point. Uh, because of our sinful nature, we fail to live out and reflect God's image. Because we have that sinful nature, we fail to think right and we fail to do right. Right? The fall does not release us from the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate still stands. It just makes it a whole lot harder to do. Again, we're back to trying to fix something that's broken, trying to restore something that's broken. Uh, but the mandate still stands. We're still called to that. Uh, we're called to be culture shapers, right? Verse 28 is his purpose for us. Here in Genesis one twenty-eight, this is where we get that idea of the mandate, right? So what is the mandate? It's be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's it. Multiply, back to mathematics again, fruitful, Maybe not so much, but we still get to multiply and we get fruitful and we get subdue and to fill the earth. That, the cultural mandate is wrapped up in that. And again, the, the well, here, we're just going to keep on going on, right? In God's mandate, both male and female have a role in human flourishing. There's individual roles of flourishing in God's presence and for God's purpose, Right? Then from the individual, we transition to a duality of flourishing, the marriage. And from marriage, we get family flourishing. And from family flourishing, we get cultural and societal flourishing. We'll park on this just for a minute or two. And that's why we get to this idea, right? When the marriage disintegrates the culture begins to disintegrate. And again, it's this idea that, well, I'm not married. Well, you still have individual flourishing. You still have a role to participate in. But when the marriage disintegrates, the culture disintegrates, right? And this goes back to, so we got to go back to 1969, California signed the first law that had no-fault divorce, 1969. It goes back further than that. If you want to talk about the, the world, it was 1917. Russia was the first nation to come up with no-fault divorce. But for us, it was 1969. You can divorce for any reason or no reason. The family begins to disintegrate, or the marriage begins to disintegrate. And when the marriage begins to disintegrate, the family begins to disintegrate. And so now we move ahead and we get to Obergefell versus Hodges, and where it makes gay marriage legal. So now not only is the family dis or marriage disintegrating, we have redefined marriage now. And not to stop there, now. We redefine what a family is. It's no longer one man, one woman, and a child or children. It's two men, and, and if they can get a surrogate to carry a baby for them for nine months, they can do that. And so we redefine marriage. We redefine family. The society cannot live long under that weight. It cannot live long under that weight. And that's the reason why we can't accommodate the culture on this. 
I don't know if you've been following. Um, yeah, Matthew. Quick question. I don't want to have you chase another rabbit. Yeah, because you know I will. <laughs> I don't know the reasoning, but here's the interesting thing, so I don't have an answer to that. Ronald Reagan was the governor who signed that bill. Yeah, Ronald Reagan was the governor who signed that bill. Years later, in an interview, he said, that was the single greatest mistake of my political career. Yeah, the single greatest mistake of my political career. And it's just, you know, how you can move and transition on things. But, you know, ultimately, God's design and God's purpose is one man, one woman. And out of that, your family. It doesn't make for a perfect family, but it gives the best structure to raise children in. And again, a statistic doesn't, right? We were talking about this. A statistic doesn't, guarantee, doesn't dictate your future. But it does tell us something about the past and about where we're at today. I know many people, single-parent homes, godly people, successful people, and they're out there doing God's business God's way. But statistically speaking, we can know that in a single-parent home, obviously, it creates higher levels of poverty. It creates higher levels of uneducated people. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Yep, all of that. And so when you begin to destroy God's design and purpose for marriage, you begin to destroy God's design and purpose for the family, you begin to destroy God's design and purpose for the society, the cultural mandate. You cannot escape it. No society can, can go against that flow. None. Questions? All right. So God's created us with a purpose, and it's important that we achieve that purpose according to his ways according to his ways, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Part of that is it's making babies. That is, it's never less than that. It's always going to be part of that. It's never going to be less than that, right? Making babies. There's a lot of people making babies, but not according to God's way. All right, God's design for making babies is to take place only within the context of marriage, Period. No exceptions. About what? Sir, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I would, I would turn around and say that's a, it's problematic. It's problematic and not, and again, some of it you do get into, um, you know, in vitro fertilization. There's a lot of things that, you know, there's how, that, how that plays out and stuff. But ultimately, because who's doing surrogacy? The homosexual community. It's the LBGTQ community. They're doing surrogacy. And so really what they're doing is they're renting a womb, Right? They may use an egg or a sperm, depending on whether it's men or, or ladies. They've got to go get the other part somewhere else. The worst thing about that is, is the woman becomes a commodity and the baby becomes a commodity. That is the wickedness of that. Because it's like, well, we need a child to fulfill our marriage vows. You can't put a weight like that on a child. 
without harming them. You personally chose a sterile relationship. You can go and have babies. It's just got to be with a man and a woman. So you personally chose a sterile relationship, and now you expect that rented womb and that baby that's created to bring happiness to your life. Right? If you're a parent, we know children don't always bring us happiness every day. Right? There's love, there's joy, maybe not a lot of peace, but there's still our children and we love them, good or bad. I don't rely upon my children to make me happy, to make me successful, to make me feel whole and complete. That is a weight that no child is meant to bear. And again, I could, I could go on forever talking about this. There's tons of problems with it. Um, anyway, but yeah, surrogacy is a problem. It's a huge problem, mostly because it's outside of God's design and it's, it's used to substantiate the LGBTQ plus community. Is that good or bad or no? Okay. Fruitful and multiplied, it's not just making babies. It's creating a culture of flourishing. Flourishing is schools, building schools, building hospitals, cities, government, churches, societies. All of this is flourishing. It's being fruitful. It's multiplying. But we have to do it God's way. To turn around and say, oh yeah, we've got flourishing taking place. But we're not doing it God's way. It's not flourishing. It's not flourishing. Subduing the earth. It's all of these things. Planting crops, building bridges, designing computers, composing music, creating art, doing mathematics. Right? All of that is subduing the earth. We are to do this in a way that glorifies God and upholds human worth and creation worth. And again, normally what happens is, is again, we'll just pick on the climate activists again. I mean, they're, they're holding high the creational order of the earth, but they're diminishing humanity. Or we can hold high the human worth and we can strip mine the earth. That's not God's order or design either. We know that it's God's design and purpose when it upholds both high. Both humanity and the creational order, that's God's idea. That's God's way. We cannot turn around and reduce those things and choose one or the other. And again, that becomes part of painting this picture of the cultural mandate. It's like, you know, God wants us to take care of the earth. Really? And we begin to tell the story. Because everybody loves the story. So we begin to tell the story. Jeremiah 29, 7. So seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you shall have shalom. Now, in the reality, in most verses, that's going to be welfare or the well-being. But the Hebrew word for that is shalom. Welfare, the Hebrew word is Shalom. It's shalom is, it's not just a greeting. It's not just, hey, peace be to you. That's part of it, but it's never less than that. 
It's peace, it's prosperity, it's wellness. It's to make something whole. It's fullness and completeness in mind, body, and estate. It is this wholeness that God has created in his image bearers and in his culture. And man, when it works together, it's shalom. It's shalom. It implies harmony in creation and with our neighbors as well-being and right relationship with God. If we don't get that vertical relationship right, we'll never get the horizontal. And again, love is love. we got to love our neighbors. Well, where does God come into that? Oh, I don't believe in God. Then you're not loving your neighbor. I don't know what it is that you think you're doing, but it's not love. All right, Genesis 2.15, God puts Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Work was there. There just wasn't thorns and thistles. We're always called to work. Always called to work. Oh, you know what? Okay, I'm getting ready to go. It's, it's work, so it's not completely off the rails here, right? Right, the auto workers, they're on strike, or a lot of them are. <clears throat> Bless you. And so... Apparently, one of the things that may be on the table, uh, 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 Diamond is his last name. Um, he was sitting there saying, you know, eventually there'll be, you'll work three and a half days and you'll have three and a half days off. What do you think about that? Good idea, bad idea. You know, initially I thought, sweet, I'll take that. Why is it a bad idea, Bob? Okay. Yeah, the work week is six days. That's God's design. And if we get away from that, it's not going to end well. And again, that's how, you know, and again, that's that idea where we bring ideas in to the culture. And it's like, oh, why is that a bad idea? Because of this. Because eventually we won't be happy with just three and a half days. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just because God says it is enough. But the other issue is, is man, it plays to our base nature. It plays to our sinful nature. And again, you know, because I had somebody ask me this. Actually, it was a college student. And they said, you know, so why is it that we, you know, we always fall into these, these secular ideas? Because it plays to our base nature. Oh, yeah, that'll feed myself. That'll feed my greed. That'll feed my lust. That'll feed whatever other issues I got. And that's the reason why. Because we have a sin nature. Wasn't it Voltaire that tried to, um, this, this philosopher that tried to change the society and just to do away with God seven days and have a, a, like a 13 work day, or 12 work day, something like that? I, I think it was Voltaire. And he went back and they kind of put a 10-day work week out there. And they, yeah, they did, yeah, it didn't do well. And that was, and that's the French trying to do it. So, you, you know, if they can't pull off it, you know, they're not going to do 10-day work week. I'll just tell you that right now. I mean, they're signing up for three. If you're French, I, I apologize. Okay, I just, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know. Anyway, it's six days. A week is seven days long. 
That's God's design. That's God's purpose. We are to cultivate. We are to keep. Adam did, and we are also. A cultural mandate calls us to create a culture of human and creation flourishing. So then, how do we shape culture? How do we do this? Well, the first thing is it's through godly wisdom. Okay? It's through godly wisdom. God's wisdom is the key to cultural flourishing. And there's hundreds of, hundreds of verses on wisdom in the scripture. I just pulled two. Psalms 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. You can jump over to James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. There's, it's all over the place. We need wisdom to do the cultural mandate well. If we grow in wisdom, we'll develop godly character. We'll make good decisions. And then consistent good decisions help create an environment of flourishing. I can make one good decision today. The chances that that's really going to make a change in the culture, not much. Depending on what the decision, maybe yes, maybe no. But for the most part, it's one good decision. I need to make a lifetime of good decisions to influence the culture. We need to make a lifetime of good decisions. The church needs to. Families need to. And through the consistent living that out, we'll create a culture of flourishing. Human flourishing create, helps create a godly culture. You know, it's... Um, this will... Several years ago, before the pandemic, um, I know you're going to be surprised at this, but I can kind of be kind of snarky and sarcastic and everything, and I know you're just shocked and you just can't believe that at all. And, man, God really convicted me of that, at least for that year he did. And uh, he says, I just want you to be encouraging to people this year. And I'm thinking, the whole year? <laughs> I'll be good to make it a day. And so... I was just going, I said, okay, wrote it down in my journal. I said, Lord, by, this power, by your power, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a blessing. I'm going to be a blessing. And so I was over in the missions office. I spent a lot of time over there. And, I, and Kent Mathis is like, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, what do you mean? Well, you're, just, you're just being nice to everybody and you, you hadn't made any snarky comments or anything like that. And, and I'm like, yeah, you know, so I just told him the story. He said, I just want to be a blessing. And for the whole year, so he would just sit there and say, oh, here comes blessing. Here comes blessing. He's coming to bless us. You know, and, and I worked hard. Not every day I didn't make it. There was plenty of failures in the thing. But so for the whole year, I just said, I just want to be a blessing. And man, when it got to the end of the year, I'm like, I'm done with that. I can't do any more of this. And my wife, she still reminds me of that. Never going to be a blessing again. Every once in a while, I'll be a blessing. Be a blessing. All the time. What's that? Most people. Most people I was a blessing to. Or I tried to be at least. Anyway, creates, human flourishing helps create a godly culture. Second, human flourishing is based on human worth. We need godly wisdom. We need human worth. In other words, we need to recognize everybody as image bearers. Philippians 1.27 says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
Philippians 4, 8 through 9 says, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is right, whatever is pure, there's whatever is lovely, whatever is good, um, of good repute, if there's any excellence, and if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things, practice these things. Uh, these things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, go to your Bible, and this right next to that be a blessing. Bob. Yeah. That just makes you bad tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and next week we'll, we'll talk more about this idea here, and that is because throughout history, Christians always run towards the needy. They run towards the sick. They run towards the downtrodden. And we'll, we'll talk about that next week. Um, so anyway, and then human flourishing is based on truth. It's based on truth. We owe it to our neighbors to speak the truth in love. Truth without love is legalism, and love without truth is liberalism or progressivism. It's love and truth. Yeah. You just don't hear. You hear lots about love today. You don't hear a lot about truth. And if you're telling me you're offended, please tell me is, if what I said is true, and then we can deal with the next part. If what I said is false, then let's deal with that. But if what I said is true... That's the most important thing. Is it true? That's how the world is shutting us down, intimidating us. Uh-huh. By feeling, that's what well, Jesus would love homosexuals too. So he, that definition of truth mm-hmm. is wrong and love is wrong. So we don't need that. As long as we are speaking the truth in love, yeah. don't let that stop you, you know, intimidate you, push you back. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, I thought I was going to make it to the whole class without talking about this, but I'm, I'm not going to make it, so I apologize. If, right? And this, you know, I don't know if you follow Andy Stanley or not, right? And, uh, you know, he had this whole conference this weekend, and it was to help the LGBTQ parents, and they had a couple men that were married to other men. And, uh, and basically he was sitting there saying, you know, Jesus drew circles around things. And Jesus did draw circles around things. But he also drew lines. He also drew lines. In other words, the circle is, man, I've died for all. I've come for all of you. I love you. I'll save you just as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. 
a circle, and a line. He just didn't talk about the lines. Right? And that's somebody that's accommodating the culture. That's accommodating the culture. Yeah, I'm moving on now because I'll get myself in trouble. If you are perpetrating a lie or you're complicit in it, then you cannot rightly claim to be loving. You cannot rightly claim to be loving if you are sharing a lie, telling a lie, believing a lie, living a lie. It's, there's nothing loving about that. Nothing. The cultural mandate in 120, right, that we talked to 126.20 is connected to the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's also tied to the Great Commission. And Jesus came up to them and said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The cultural mandate encompasses all of that. And so when we talk, it's not this piece or that piece. It's got to be the whole story. You know, because the thing about it is, is that, you know, the church always seems to be behind the culture 20 or 30 years. Right? And then this has been a struggle for me, man. How do we get the church current with the culture? We're always chasing the culture and trying to figure it out. We're not supposed to chase the culture. We're not supposed to figure out the culture. We're supposed to create culture. And until as the church we start creating culture, we're always going to be behind the cultural curve. We're always going to be scratching our heads wondering, wow, what just happened? We have to create culture. The cultural mandate calls us to that. Questions, problems, concerns? All right. Let me close this in prayer. Blessed Father, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you've called us to be a part of your story. Lord, you didn't just bring us here that we would fall and that you could redeem us, but, Lord, that you would restore us, you would restore your created order. And uh, Lord, it's, it's a big task, but you're a big God. And so I pray that we wouldn't look at the enormity of what's before us, but we would look at the glory of who has saved us. For, Lord, we just need to be faithful with what you put before us, and you will bring the growth. I pray your blessings upon each person here, Lord. I pray your face would shine upon them, Lord, that you would be gracious to them and that your peace would lift them up. We love you, Lord Jesus, and may we go this week bringing glory to your name. And it is in your mighty and matchless name we ask these things. Amen.